Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody. It's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week's episode features Casey Georgeson. She's the founder and CEO of St. Jane. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Beatrice Dixon. She's the co-founder and CEO of The Honeypot Company. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to be here with Casey Georgeson. She is the founder and CEO of St. Jane. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's so nice to see your face. You're so smiley. I'm <laughs> pretty happy person. Pretty optimistic all around. Wake up in the morning and I'm usually pretty happy until, of course, all of the things pile on and then I have I have my moments. But I start out really <laughs> happy. It's still early here on the West Coast. <laughs> Are you typically an early riser? I have gotten earlier with St. Jane. I tend to wake up around 6.30 and immediately check, you know, what's going on with the business because we have a lot of vendors who are in Asia and it seems like overnight, it's amazing what can happen overnight. So there's a lot to deal with when I first wake up and I try to get a big block of work done before my coffee and before breakfast with the kids. Uh, It just makes me feel like if my inbox is a little bit more managed before the day actually starts, uh, it's going to be a better day. Um, so do you wake up in the morning and you actually like feel rested and feel optimistic and refreshed? Most mornings I do. Most mornings I do. Sleep is really big for me. So I prioritize it and make sure that I know I'm going to get enough. I really think I'm one of those people who needs like eight hours plus. I don't do well under eight hours. My husband can sleep six and five and he doesn't, he can wake up and go to the gym. I'm not that way. I wake up. Uh, after a good night's sleep, and I feel positive. But if I've if I'm on a sleep deficit for a couple of days, I really feel it first in my mood. I then feel it in my ability to work out and focus. Um, so I've just realized that sleep has to be a big priority. I am also someone who loves sleep, and I always have been. And I was that person in my twenties where my friends were like, "Let's stay out till four in the morning." I'm like, "No, I really want to sleep." Like that was always <laughs> like like the number one for me. Um, and even to this day, like I become like so grumpy to my kids, you know, after a certain hour and I'm like, I just shut down, like I can't like function. And then I wake up rested and yeah, typically pretty optimistic. Um, sleeps, sleep is like one of the best things ever. (laughs) It really is. And I actually am not a great sleeper. I used to be before I worked in television in New York actually was where I lost my ability to fall asleep because I worked on the morning show and I would fall asleep at night thinking about all the things that needed to go right the next morning. And I developed this like insomnia around being able to fall asleep. I can't turn my brain off. So I really have to work at it to actually fall asleep. Otherwise I can lay in bed and continue to work in my brain half asleep until two in the morning and it's not healthy. It is not good. So I really have to prioritize making sure that I'm calm enough to fall asleep and I'm, my, my head is in a good space and I've gotten everything done that I need to get done and I've got a to-do list memo by my bed in case something comes up. So I, I have to work at it. What is the process? Like, is there a decompression zone? Like, if you don't mind sharing these tips, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners feel the same way. 
Yeah, it, for me, it is, I really have to put my phone down around 10 o'clock. If I'm going to fall asleep by 11, I have to put my phone down at 10. For the longest time, I mean, St. Jane's still very new. We're not quite two years old, but for the first, I mean, really, it's just been recently that I've been able to do this where before it was, my phone was right in front of my face from the morning I woke up until the morning uh, or to the minute I went to bed. And I, that blue light and that stimulation, I could feel it in my ability to turn everything off. And so I had to really prioritize, you know, putting the phone down at 10 PM and then focusing on anything, but whether it's reading or closing my eyes and meditating or trying just to separate myself from, you know, what had happened throughout the day. I oftentimes, it sounds so crazy, but I will imagine like (laughs) what I'm going to wear to an event or, you know, in the days when we still had events or if I want to create something, you know, product wise, that helps me kind of separate myself from the minutia of the moment and takes myself out of my own uh, head. And that will help me fall asleep. I'll imagine, I mean, it sounds so cheesy, but I'll imagine going for a walk on the beach or whatever it is to separate myself from that um, connection to the consciousness, that is helpful for me. This idea of imagining what I'd wear to a party is really so fascinating because it's probably something that I would typically spend zero time thinking about, you know, maybe a minute and a half if there actually was an event. But the um, sort of the creative process and daydreaming around something that is so not normally in my head, I, I'm going to try that next time I can't relax. Yeah, um, it's like the modern version of counting sheep. Right. And I can just like think about, because I'm a big fan of Rent the Runway, I could just think about like, oh, what would I be searching for? Right? <laughs> right? Like what keywords would I look for in my search of what to wear? And I am I think it's probably an awesome way for me to get out of all the mishigas in my head too, like all the stuff. Yeah. By the time you get to your earrings, what earrings you're going <laughs> to pair with what outfit, you'll be fast asleep. <laughs> That's such an awesome trick. Okay. I'm totally going to try it. I love that. Um, yeah, I have like a notepad next to my bed, but you know, my head, it doesn't shut off that very easily. Um, but I love this trick. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. That is amazing. Um, I'm sorry that being a producer in news is, I mean, I'm not surprised, but like, I guess I didn't really think about like how much being a producer in news for morning shows would like really mess with the way your brain works when you're trying to fall asleep at night. Cause it's all about what's happening in like six hours. Exactly. And yeah, because I really, I think back to those days pre when I was a producer and how easy it was for me to fall asleep anywhere. I could sleep on planes. I could nap. And then I don't know, I think it was because I would get phone calls from the control room at five in the morning if something had been missed or if a graphic was wrong or if the guest wasn't showing up to the show. And so it still fell on me. And so I would go to sleep anticipating all of the um, kind of anxiety inducing moments. And then it was, it was a sleep problem that didn't go away. It just kind of stuck. And so, yeah, it was really the the anticipation of uh, what could go sideways that created the issue. That's such a horrible way to live because I live that way too. Like I'm less so now when um, in my agency, when we would release things to print, like print ads, which hardly anyone runs anymore. So it's, um, or like direct mail, right? These things are getting printed. Like once they're printed, it's done. And there was always, every time we release something to print, I always get this like anxiety and like my body, like I can feel like tingles in my arms and my hands because I'm (laughs) terrified of it being wrong. And that's, you know, that's, that's awful. It's like, I have like PTSD from like catalogs. 
Well, it's re- it's real. It's real. And what what actually ended up being really helpful for me was I worked for an anchor at CNN who helped tremendously with his perspective because inevitably things do go wrong, no matter how much you plan and how how meticulous you are in your details. But he would say to me, if something went wrong, which I was obviously my hardest critic, he would say, don't worry about it. This is just like peeing in the ocean. Only you care. No one else cares. And you got to move on. And that really stuck. I think it's a really good life lesson in general. So many things that happen to us in life are such a big deal to us. But it's our perspective that really gives them, you know, strength or weakness to impact our, our, our lives. So yeah, that was that was good advice. Jack Cafferty. Oh, yes. Well, I grew up in the New York area, so I recognize that name from local news for sure. Um, okay, so we uh, we got off on a tangent. I want to ask you the question that I've been asking everyone during pandemic Zoom podcast recordings. Um, I want you to think back to when you're like eight or 10 years old. And if somebody asked you at the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? What is your answer? My daughters just asked me this yesterday. That's so funny. Um, I wanted to be an actress, a doctor, an artist, and there was one other. But actress, actress, artist, and doctor are probably the ones that stick out. Uh, that's so interesting because if I track your career, like anyone who like pulls you up on LinkedIn can be say like, you kind of done a little bit of all of that. <laughs> Wait, that's true. That's so true. Right? Like, so like, you know, actor, producer, like, right, you're making, you're making things happen, right, on screen, um, you're producing. Um, doctor, I'd say, you know, St. Jane is a pathway to wellness, right? So you're not prescribing medication or taking care of illnesses, but you're helping people um, soothe through the things that are hard. Um, And then what was the other one? Artists, like look at, you know, you created brands at, you know, at LVMH. That's so funny. You're so, that's so right. I hadn't thought about it that way because I felt so directionless for such a long time when I was growing up, like high school and college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So that's interesting to hear you articulate it that way. It's not wrong. Yeah, most of the people I talk to, they say they wanted to be, you know, I don't know. Um, they, they wanted to be something and then like, you know, f- fast forward four different types of careers and pivots later. Well, they're, they're kind of doing that. Maybe they can get an education or a degree in it, but they're doing it in in many ways or at least like the, the root sort of emotions tied to those careers. Um, and that's kind of cool. I wanted to be um, an archaeologist. That was the first job I wanted. Um, and I think that I, I kind of am in, in our industry. I like dig up a lot of stuff. You know, I'm as a marketer, I think as a savvy marketer, you're really like looking underneath the dirt, right? You're looking deeper, deeper, deeper. Yeah. Um, Okay. So let's talk about this career because like I I have this list. It was CNN, wine industry, business school, Sephora, can do like, and now, you know, your own business back to wine, then your own business. So um, you mentioned that you felt directionless, right? I'm sure you had friends growing up who were like, I want to be a brain surgeon. And then they became a brain surgeon, right? So I feel like I'm, uh, I'm really aligned to your path, which was like, where am I going? What am I doing? So um, let's let's focus the most on this time of building brands um, because this is like, sounds like a dream job. You said, my job was to imagine how brands would live in the beauty space, daydream, storytell, um, and relate to fans. So tell me about that time in your career. 
So such a, a formative time in my career. I feel like it was like getting a PhD in the beauty industry. So when I was in business school, I had had a little bit of experience in innovation in wine, and I had also been a producer for CNN. Those were my big, my big, um, my big jobs pre business school. And so the summer between my first and second year. I said, you know, I really want to try the beauty industry. And Sephora was like Mecca for me at the time and still is. But I walked, I, I had a friend who was there and I walked into an interview and, with them to get an internship. And they said, well, we've never had MBA interns before. This was 2007. But if you want to come on board and kind of learn the ropes this summer, we can pay you in makeup and it'll be great. And I was like, yes, that sounds incredible. So I got a little sliver of experience that summer. And then when I graduated, I was like, I really want to go back to Sephora. That was so interesting, such impressive women there and wanted to go deeper into the industry. So I got a job at Kendo, which was a newly formed team within Sephora. And um, at the time there were five of us and it was the mission of Kendo was to create brands that were exclusive to Sephora for differentiation. And my job was new. I had never heard of this job before. It was basically the liaison between the designers or the um, the companies that we were working with. So Disney, Kat Von D, Marc Jacobs, Elizabeth and James, um, and Sephora. And to, like you said, imagine and daydream what those brands would look like in the beauty space. And so it helped me realize that I really love this blue sky space where there's not there's not an answer. You really do have to imagine it. And that was where I felt like my creativity was the most challenged. And it was also the most rewarding because I was working with people who were so inspiring in their own worlds of, you know, fashion or whatever it was. And I was able to learn about that sort of founder vision and that passion for what they do and being entrepreneurs and help them translate it into the beauty space. So it was a really amazing foundation for me to, I, I, in the back of my mind, I always thought I wanted to create my own brand, but didn't feel like I had the big idea until, of course, I discovered CBD. But those years were, like I said, like getting a PhD in the beauty industry and incredibly formative for me. What's the most... Um I guess, cherished thing that you created during your time there? Mark Jacobs. I really loved working with him. He, he, was, he was so incredible to be around because he had such an unbelievable vision, but he was also really collaborative with us. And we were terrified that first meeting that we met with him and we had to present general concepts and who we were. And I remember my boss and I were both like, our hands were shaking under the table. Like our notes are all really scriggly because... We were just unsure about what he would be like to work with. And I will always cherish that year, year and a half that I had working on that brand with him because of what I learned and how inspiring he was. That's so great to hear because um, on the other side of my business, the agency side, we've worked with clients in the licensing side, right? So they're licensing the brand name and um, oftentimes the person behind the brand name is not involved in the work and it becomes really tedious and annoying and takes forever. And, um, there's so much, and, um, like, um, us versus them, like attitude built into the process. So it's so wonderful to hear that you had a great partner who was invested the way that you guys are invested. Cause I think that's what it takes to make these things, um, really work. Yeah, it does. It does. And I think he had a lot of fun with it. And so it became, 
I, I knew throughout the whole process that this was a really sort of, it was a special dynamic that we had with him, that we were building a lot of trust and, um, and that it was going to end up being really incredible at the end of the day. And it was, it was such an exciting launch and really anticipated in the beauty industry. So I'm really proud. I'm really proud of that brand and the development that we did. So um, let's fast forward, Casey. Why build your own brand? Why be an entrepreneur? Well, I really fought it for a while. I had done innovation, like I said, in the wine industry, creating new wine brands for um, the second largest wine company, a big wine company here in the U.S. And I hesitated because I knew what it would take. I mean, I didn't know the way I know now. Now I really know what it's like to be an entrepreneur, but I knew that it was going to take me away from you know, my family, my kids, my husband, the balance that that I had created in my life. And so I hesitated because I I just, I loved the world of brand creation and creative, but I knew that I was going to need to learn all the things that I've learned, operations, supply chain, insurance, legal, HR, the things that weren't necessarily a part of my world in my career. And um, so I had to brace myself for that. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the past, you know, three years that I've been working on this and what I've learned. I feel like I have such a new perspective on, on the world, on beauty, on skincare, on the world of being an entrepreneur. But I, I hesitated because I knew it was going to be crazy. And it has been. It has been everything that I was afraid of, but it's also been, you know, incredibly rewarding. There have been things that have, have happened uh, with St. Jane that have just been, I'm really, really grateful for. And so it's been an incredible journey, but difficult. And that's what I think it took me until, I mean, I've been a brand creator since 2006, 2005, and it took me until 2019 to launch my own brand because I felt like I had to really be passionate about the idea, which I am. And, uh, and that's when it was no longer a decision. I had to do it. When I discovered CBD, I was like, this is the most exciting skincare ingredient of our time. I have to do this brand. So the things I, that I think as an entrepreneur are the I guess the hardest or most challenging are the things that when you were at Kendu or at the um, wine company, like other people did, like legal, um, finance, um, I guess regulatory, like all of these things that are not part of the daydream, right? That they make the daydream happen. Um, So as an entrepreneur, like what has been your path to like bringing those experts or expert voices into a small business? How, How did you do that? Well, I, I sort of bulldozed my way through it and learned as I went. I, I've said so many times, I feel like it's like building the airplane mid-flight. It really is. And I feel, I feel lucky that we've partnered with, um, you know, vendors and partners that have really joined hands with us and said, okay, we get that you don't have all the answers. We don't either. Let's figure it out together. What's right for St. Jane? What's right for your business? And so across the board, I think that's been... You know, I'm not afraid to ask for help navigating through the answers when we don't have them. And especially with my team, it's been, listen, we don't have a process yet. We're going to have to build this process together. I don't know what the answer is, but let's let's talk it out and let's get there. And so I think that's been my approach is the answers the answers are usually there. You you sometimes need more information before you can make a decision and you have to be okay with that that you don't have all the pieces yet. 
and that, you know, it's the answer will come to you, but it's not always super clear. So you have to be very comfortable with ambiguity, making decisions, like I said, without all of the information or with as much information as you can pull together and then being okay if it doesn't go your way, being okay if it, if it, you know, if you have some failures. So I've tried to be very Zen about the whole thing while maintaining the turbo mentality that you need to be successful. But that's been, you know, building the airplane mid-flight is probably the best way I can describe it. Yeah. There's, um, I, uh, there's things like in my own business where I just really want the process to be cleaner, better, more organized. And the pace at which this um, industry keeps changing. I mean, I've had my business for 14 years, like, and many of my team members are my age. So we've been doing this for a long time. We're like reinventing things every day because everything keeps changing. So just when I think that we found it, you know, like the clear path, everyone understands, then we like have to rebuild it. And it almost keeps catching us off guard because the business, the industry just it moves so, so fast. Everything has changed. And I think about people who are like, you know, maybe 15 years older than me, like they had a job. It was, there was print. There were due dates for the print. It was the insertion order signed. Let's release the art. Like there was just, it was so much of a system, like a very consistent process. And um, there's times when I just like wish it was that easy. There's no playbook. There is no playbook. Um, I think having advisors that you trust is really, I don't know if you have built a, an advisory network, but that for me has been really helpful too, where there's problems that I'm trying to work through. I feel really stuck, lots of blockers, and I'll call someone. And just the perspective outside of the industry or the perspective from someone who's been through it, again, there's no playbook, but at least that those are inputs that for me help me see it more clearly oftentimes. Um, yeah, it's 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 an adventure. It's a roller coaster. Well, let's talk about no playbook. I mean, for the space of CBD, um, the marketing toolbox that most entrepreneurial brands work with um, can't necessarily work for you um, because of, you know, regulations and rules and things that, like, at this moment you might not have control over. Um, so I'm curious to, to hear about, like, how you solve for that, right? Like, um, getting getting the word out, building awareness, amplifying the great stories. It's just, it's not a click of a button for you like it is for other brands. Yeah, I've had to really go easy on myself in that respect because you're right. It wasn't, we're not like a normal skincare or beauty brand that has a lot of levers they can pull to grow out of the gate. 2019 was tough. There were so many headwinds, so many challenges. I felt like a little bit of a crazy person trying to help people understand that CBD is an efficacious molecule. It's not a miracle, but it's a molecule. It's not a schedule one substance like heroin. This is not, we're not talking about something that is um, not beneficial to people. There are so many benefits to this ingredient. It's like a vitamin. And so I, it was challenging between, you know, payment processors and advertising, whether it was Facebook or Google or retargeting, there were a lot of channels that were just unavailable to us. And so I relied really heavily on our retailers as our influencers. And that was, I think for us, a really great way for us to launch out of the gate because we were able to tap into these communities that were, um, you know, loyal to these retailers that have, have been mobilized for our brand. Um, so the retailers as influencers was really big for us and a little bit counter to a lot of the philosophies around building a DTC brand. That was what we couldn't do at first. We couldn't build a DTC brand, a strong one with the headwinds. 2020 has been different. We have had unbelievable growth in DTC, but 2019 was all about 
uh, trial and awareness and getting our brand out there. So it, retailers and then press. Press was something that was really fascinated by CBD when we launched. I think we launched at a good time. And so the editors embraced us and that was really meaningful to our business. It gave us a lot of momentum and credibility and helped us uh, combat the headwinds and also allowed us to you know, talk to the potential vendors, the, the advertising vendors or our payment processors and say, look, like, you know, we are, we're working to architect the narrative of this industry. Let's work together. Let's partner and build the airplane mid-flight together. And that was, I think, I think that was good for us charting the way as a CBD brand that was trying to do things right and, and responsibly. So, uh, but yeah, it was not, 2019 was not without its challenges. 2020 has had challenges, different ones, but 2019 was really around a lot of regulatory headwinds. So what changed um, this year in terms of being able to navigate the, the communications challenges? Well, I think first and foremost, there's a lot of education that needs to happen around CBD. And so we are now a couple of years into that education. I think people have relaxed a little bit that this is, you know, this is not... THC. There are brands like St. Jane that are not, you know, sort of weed washing and trying to capitalize on drug culture. And the FDA is uh, very, very busy and with a lot of things that are much more important than than CBD right now. Um, but I think that it's it's also the cat's out of the bag on CBD being able to truly help people from a topical perspective and from an ingestible perspective, it really does make a difference and it's changed people's lives. And so that um, momentum for the ingredient, I think, is just getting started with more education, more education. But I think collectively, a lot of these areas that were blocked to us in 2019 have opened up because there's more understanding of what it is, what it does, the risks, the downsides, which there very, there are very little, um, and then the the positives that are available to people by using it. So I think that that's really where it's loosened up. We still have a lot of work to do, though. It's not smooth sailing quite yet, but I do think it's it's an exciting frontier with the what's been opened up so far. Casey, what's the um count? Like, where does a counter argument to CBD come from? Like, it's not a drug. So um, are there, like, organizations who are saying, don't use it? Like, where's where's the pressure coming from? You know, like, it's it's not like lobbying, like, tobacco and, like, tobacco's bad, doctors are saying, but then the tobacco lobby say, no, it's fine. Like, it's not, is it that kind of... Like, is there like a lobby against CBD? Well, I think that there... Because that would, that would be like, I think, yeah. sorry to interrupt. Um, it, would that be equal to like a lobby against lavender essential oil? Like, does, is, is that sort of like in my head, am I seeing this clearly? Your analogy, which we have to talk about with castor oil is so good. We need to talk about that. Is That was such a poignant point that we talked about in the pre-interview. Uh, well, to answer, to answer your question, I do, I think that the... Because CBD is borderline, it's borderline medicinal. It has the ability to help balance things that the pharmaceutical companies want to regulate. So pain, sleep, anxiety, um, gut health. I think that there is there is pushback from those companies. I think there's, and I and and I don't know specifically what that pushback is, but I think that there's this nervousness that people are going to choose CBD over other uh, options and responsibly, you know, you don't want people choosing CBD over, you know, some 
Western medicine choices that might be really life-saving. So there is responsibility needed around how you message what CBD can do. And I think that that is, it's like any other, you know, supplements are not regulated, but it's like any other ingredient, like SPF is regulated by the FDA because it's, it's borderline medicinal as well. And so I think that that's where the, um, guardrails are being put in is let's make sure that what we're talking about with CBD is accurate and backed by science and not over-promising health results that would be irresponsible. Got it. Okay. So um, there's forces that you are clear to you that are applied, but then there's there's some that aren't, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, So it's a really challenging place to be. It is. And the way that I approach it is I feel really clear about our mission and what our products can do. And so I, I stick to that. I try not to let the distractions slow us down. I think that's, it's been a sort of a blessing for us as we've gotten into the industry that there are so many headwinds that it's kept a lot of the bigger players out and it's allowed us to do our thing and establish our brand and so I feel I feel lucky that, you know, we've been able to have the vision and the mission behind what we do that has been, you know, has been momentum inspiring for us versus slowing us down. So Casey, the last thing I want to talk about before we run out of time is the idea of leaving a dream job to pursue another endeavor and um, or to have more balance in your life or whatever. And you had told me that... Um, you know, if you leave on good terms, you could probably always go back. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think we we'll probably have a lot of listeners who are like, I really want to leave. I really want to pursue my dream, but I'm just terrified that like, if it doesn't work out or I don't like it, that there's not a place for me. Yeah, I think, okay. So, so I'll, I'll explain sort of where I came out on that when I left Sephora and then some advice. So I think when I left Sephora, it was a really hard decision. I loved my job. Like you said, it was my dream job. I felt so grateful to have it. And yet I also had these two daughters. I now have three, but I had two daughters at the time. And I knew that the balance in my life was really out of whack and not sustainable. I was traveling all over the place. It was hard on my husband. I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And I just felt, I felt um, out, of, out of sync with what I wanted. And so I made the decision to leave, but I wanted to make sure that it wasn't because there was a problem with my job, with my team, with it, there wasn't. And so that was really important to me that my decision to leave was really about me and my balance and what I needed to kind of correct in my life that had nothing to do with, you know, anyone else. It was, and I think that helped because I had you know, I had obviously done a great job in my role there and loved every, all of the relationships that I had built. And that was really important to me. And so keeping those relationships whole when I left was essential. And I knew, I knew that I could go back if I wanted to, uh, and there was an opportunity and that, that also made it easier to leave because of, of, of the, um, you know, not, I want to say fallback because it was more than that because it was such a great job in such a great company, but I, that was important to me to maintain those relationships and to maintain my reputation. I think that was for me through in every choice in my career, having leaving on good terms was essential. And, you know, my advice to everybody is really, if you're thinking about making a change, 
first of all, it's always going to work out. It will work out. If you're driven, if you are committed, if you have high integrity in everything that you approach, you will find you will find something that feels like a good fit. Um, sometimes you have to go through a few roles before you find that good fit. Sometimes it, there's no role that's a good fit and you decide to be an entrepreneur. But if you stay committed to finding the balance in your own life and making sure that you're you're in a role that is suited to your skill set and your passion and what inspires you, I do believe it will all work out. And, you know, the, the financial side, obviously, is we're, we're, we're really in sort of economic uncertainty right now. You know, the, the decision to leave a job that is solid and stable right now is, is uniquely challenged. So be really thoughtful about that and the timing because you want to make sure that where you're going is going to enable you to use whatever you do as a launching pad to the next thing. And, um, and, but staying true to what makes you feel balanced, I think is so important. It's wellness, it's, um, sanity, it's health. Ultimately, if you're stressed out and even if you don't feel that way, it's going to come out sideways in your body and your mind and, you don't want to get sick one day and look back and say, I just didn't know how to create and force the balance in my life that I needed. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, I think it's great. And also not like, you know, throwing the papers in there and being like, F you everybody, right? Just like being honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't throw the papers in the air. <laughs> don't take a baseball bat to the printer, right? Just like, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> totally. honesty and humanity go very far. Well, um, Casey, I love getting to know you and I'm so grateful that you shared your wisdom with our listeners today. Thank you so much, Jody. It was great to talk to you too. Good talk all day. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Casey. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.